Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day. Welcome along to episode 34 of the Howie Games. Firstly, right off the top, thanks for all the positive, really positive feedback we got on last week's Bruce McAvaney episode. I got a lot of social media messages at MarkHoward03 on Twitter and Facebook, and it all seems you love the great man as much as I do, which is fantastic. Now, this week in Australia, it is all about the AFL and NRL Grand Finals, but next week, the Howie Games will be off to Mount Panorama for the Bathurst 1000 with Channel 10. Great event. Shocking, shocking hotel, but a great event. Anyway, more of that another time. So, in the lead-up to Bathurst, we are going racing this week with James Courtney. In terms of the championship picture, James Courtney, a man who has won championships around the world. He's won the British Formula 4 championship. He's won the Japanese F3 championship. This is a home ground win. Thank you, guys. Well done, James Courtney. A new V8 supercar champion is crowned here at Sydney Olympic Park. Now, a lot of people, motor racing fans included, will know James as a V8 supercar driver, but his career has been far, far, far more varied than that, and his story is about so much more than that. As a very young man, James had his heart set on Formula One and his time in Europe saw him well on the way. Up and down, they'll know that Courtney's made a move and that's got to be coming soon. He's all over the back of Davidson. Goes to that's the- James racing in Britain in the year 2001 and this is a pretty raw episode. James really opens up about the struggles he had as a young man at school and in turn on the track after that. It then has him in Europe at age 14, racing wheel-to-wheel and beating the likes of Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. It's a bit of tragedy in this story. It has a life-changing accident, and James's dreams constantly being crushed. But this is a bloke who continually, continually refuses to give up. You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try You've got to try, try, try Hey crew, Big Penguin here. On the topic of not giving in, what happened to our producer, old mate MJ, when he went to the Singapore Grand Prix pickle? Well, Penguin, Daddy said him one job, one job only. What job, pickle? You remember, Pengy. To get a Howie Games episode lined up with our man, Lewis Hamilton. MJ getting Lewis. Please, Pickle, talk about a boy on a man's mission. No, Pengy. I admit, I thought MJ was a bit of a donkey. Not your top line talent, but magnificent MJ sent this video back of him apparently lining up Lewis one-on-one when the hammer was arriving at the circuit. Bored us, Pickle. Nope. Check it out. Let's see how he went. Lewis! Lewis! MJ here from Australia. Good luck on the weekend. What, that's it? I don't think there's any more. Hang on, there must be. Lewis! Lewis! MJ here from Australia. Good luck on the weekend. Lewis! Lewis! MJ from Australia! What a bloody turkey pickle! That was embarrassing, Pengy. The hammer didn't even turn around. Gave our boy donuts. Told you, Pickle. He can't fire a shot, that kid. That type of gear is bad for our brand, Pengy. 
Not for much longer, Pickles. Sack the clown, I reckon. Agreed. He's a poo head. (laughs) (laughs) For once, for once, I reckon I agree with you guys. MJ, absolutely pathetic effort. Looks like I need to sort Lewis out. All right, let's get on with it. Here's James Courtney. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion James Courtney, welcome to the Howie Games. It's great to see you. We've just been having a chat about what podcasts are. Um, and you're, You've opened my eyes to them. Well, you're a bit of a podcast virgin, let's say. You haven't... Uh, I am. You're popping my cherry today. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, it should be fun. It should be fun. Hopefully not messy. Um, so you haven't listened to really podcasts before. I flicked you this one. It's sort of the first one you've had a bit of a listen to. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm a bit of a virgin to it all. And, and um, no, it's fantastic. Like we were just talking before we come on. It, you can really, um, you know, if you're interested in whatever you're interested in, there is something for it and you don't, it's ad free and, and um, you know, direct um, it's information. Different. So it, it, it's, it's good. A, it's a different way of going about it. To be honest, most people that I do these with to this point in the Howie Games, not everyone. I know reasonably well. I don't know you that well, except is that, you know, you're always in your race suit and I'm always in that Channel 10 gear and I'm coming up trying to speak to you about car racing, which is, you know, that's what you do and that's what I do, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I suppose put it down to it, it is. But uh, like with everything, I suppose, um, like we were only just talking about, you only get to scratch the surface on, on the person that you are and, and a lot of people, the like when I meet people in the street or, you know, especially now with school parents, kids are going to school, mm. so you're meeting other parents and they're like, oh, you know, I always thought you are a bit of an asshole, but you're actually a good <laughs> bloke. So it's, uh, you probably don't really get to put the proper image or you don't really get to project yourself on onto television at that point. Um, you know, when you come up and, you know, typically if you guys are rushing up, there's something that's gone wrong, so there's yeah. emotion involved or, you know, whether it's a win, then there's another sort of emotion. So you don't really get the proper person, I suppose. So that's why I thought this was a good thing to um, let people see the real person that I am. Not that I'm fake when I'm on TV, but I think, um, you know, when you're doing interviews, you, you do have an um, emotion attached to mm. whether or what the interview is about. And with this being a, more of a discussion about your life, it's, um, yeah. yeah, you're more open, I suppose, and you're not guarded, so you're not holding things back. And so people, you know, get to see the, the real you, I guess. So well, I hope get ready, everyone. Well, I hope people come away not thinking, geez, he actually is an arsehole after all this, but I'm sure they won't. I'm he, sure he they actually won't. was. I didn't think he was a good, uh, <laughs> too bad a bloke until now. <laughs> so, mate, we normally start these things at the start, and people... People, people will be surprised, I know, when they listen to this because people see you as a V8 supercar driver. Um, but in some ways, that's been the second half of your career. You've had a career that you drove a lot of other things before that. Before we get to that, mate, where'd you grow up? What'd your, what'd your mum and dad do? And uh, well, Young James, what was he all about? It all started in 1980 at Nepean Hospital on uh, <laughs> June the 29th at uh, about 2.05 in the afternoon. Um, no, it, yeah, I'm from Penrith, west of Sydney, born in Nepean Hospital. Yep. Um a lot of people don't know I'm a twin, so there's. Oh yeah. I'm a, uh, a with a with a girl. Her name's Rebecca. Right. Uh, she's four minutes older than me. Um, so yeah, that's where that's where it, it all started for me. I've we've, I've also got an older sister, Melinda, who's uh, three years older than us, myself and Beck. But uh, but yeah, we grew up west of Sydney, really normal sort of family. Yep. Um, you know, 
dad's a dad's a carpet layer. Mum and dad had their own business with with that. So it's uh, yeah, just normal Western Sydney family. Um, very much you know working class. We weren't sort of gifted with uh, mm. with a, a um, you know by any means. I didn't have a hard upbringing, but um, but yeah, just a normal person. So did you have any or do you have any of that freaky twin stuff with your sister, where people talk about you know knowing what they're doing at times? Or I think that's all a load of crap. Is unless, it? Is it? So unless you don't have unless that. the four minute gap was too much, <laughs> it had to be closed. But uh, but no, I, I suppose it's. Um, yeah, for me, as we'll probably get into later, it's really quite bizarre in that um, I'm only now getting a relationship with my family, I suppose, um, you know, through those earlier years, very close with your, your family network, but then because I left at such an mm. impressionable age, you sort of sort of went away from the whole my family. So um, I suppose a lot of the last couple of years has been getting to re-know my family, but uh, yeah, for sure. You know, we were a very tight-knit group um, as a as a young family with mum and dad and and, um, you know, with carding, it always took up, you know, everyone's weekend. So my sisters would come away and would all travel as a family um, most weekends. And then as they got a bit older, they started doing dancing and all that sort of jazz. And, and um, then it became just dad and I. But, uh, but no, nothing, uh, nothing unusual. Um, you know, just all the normal stuff growing up, hating your sisters, fighting. But, uh, yeah, no no crazy. <laughs> like, I can't sit here now and tell you she's eating a, a jam donut and having well, she, a, a double-shot latte. She's or not anything. in pain or anything at this no, point. No, no, no. So, uh, oh, so, that's yeah. good. I think Beck probably thinks that she knows me better than she does. But, uh, but yeah, no, we're, we're just normal. So when does motorsport enter your life for the first time and how does it enter your life? And at what age are you? Um, I was about eight, seven, eight years old. My dad... Um, Sort of started tampering with go karts a bit when we when I was that age. Because he was and, into uh, them, or um, I think he's always sort of he was a initially he was a carpenter by trade, so he was a builder. And then my mum's parents were had the carpet business, and then my dad sort of took it over when they retired, and so then he sort of steered away from the carpentry stuff and started doing carpet. And so, but he always I think was mechanically minded or liked doing stuff with his hands. So I think the the whole karting thing. I think one of his mates raced or something, so it sort of got an interest, and then he started going, and then I think I uh, annoyed the shit out of him for long enough that he <laughs> let me have a go, and I went pretty good. But I, initially, I was playing soccer. Um, probably wasn't much of a team player in that I think really? I got kicked off the side for tackling my own blokes to try and get the glory of the goal. <laughs> and the funniest thing is I can see Cadell, my boy, doing the exact same thing now. But it's, um, what, So they were moving forward and there was an opportunity for a goal and you'd take it off and try and put it in the back of the net. Yeah. yeah I respect so, that. I yeah, respect yeah, that. So, so, uh, so quickly I got uh, moved off the team. Um, and then, yeah, and then Dad was carding and, and um, I annoyed him enough and then it was a... One afternoon, I remember, it was at Lithgow, um, you know, out west over the mountains, Blue yep. Mountains, and um, out at that track, they had a little cart you could, with adjustable pedals, so Dad let me, or let them put the pedals right back and gave me a go, and I remember the day, and he ran around beside me yelling at me what to do, so it wasn't a matter of, I got in and I was out in centre. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it did uh, take a bit of time and practice and all that sort of stuff, but uh, but yeah, so it would, yeah, my introduction to the whole thing is is uh is big jim and what hooked you what was what was the first thought when you got in the cart that made you want to do it another time well obviously from the the soccer side of things i like the glory of <laughs> the limelight i guess um but uh but yeah that, for me i think it's competing it's um you know i'll compete with anything i you know i suppose growing up with my sister twin sister you're always competing um and you know, my other sister and then, you know, running at school, I was always really 
aggressively competitive. Yeah. Um, so I think that element was um, was probably something that jumped out at me. And, and um, you know, for sure I like the, the speed. What the young kid doesn't like um, yeah. the adrenaline rush of it all. And, and um, yeah, just straight away I was uh, I was hooked and, and um, you know, Dad watched Formula One, so obviously he sat down with him and, and, and watched it. Um, so I'd look at those guys and see them on the grid with the – pretty girls around them and at, at the at the the day they were sitting on the tire looked pretty cool you know the yeah everyone around them tv asking them questions and then i'd i'd see think oh that's a pretty good way to earn money and then i'd see my dad come home with you know calluses on his hands and knees from crawling around laying yep. carpet and thought that looks like a lot better way to earn money than 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 doing the carpet laying thing so it's um it was something that i've always wanted to do ever since i was young i've never sort of never had an idea of being a fireman or a policeman or any of that stuff, it's only ever been, I'm, it wasn't I want to be, it's I'm going to be, right. um, you know, race cars to earn money. So it's um, it's something that I've always wanted and, and never had any sort of other idea. I remember we've done an episode for Series 2 with Mark Weber and he talks about the same thing with his old man about sitting down with his dad and it was Daryl Eastlake was hosting it and, yeah. and he was talking about who, who the boys were he followed. Do you remember, was there any of those Formula 1 boys that made an impression on you? Was there a, was there a bloke you're going for? Yeah, for sure. It's hands down, Senna was, yep. the, uh, was the gun. I think for my sort of generation, yeah. it was he was probably easily the standout, standout you know, bloke that everyone followed. Um, you know, Prost probably was equally as talented but probably didn't show as much passion and I suppose I probably got off that um, yeah. that passion that he had for it and that uh, will to do anything to win. Um, it's something that sort of st- stood out for me and something I could relate to. Um, so, yeah, definitely Senna. Um, probably had a little bit of a soft spot for Berger. Oh, Gerhardt. He was, uh, Gerhard. he was uh, yeah, Senna's teammate for a while there and then went to Ferrari. But uh, definitely, definitely those two, but, yeah, more so... Also, and I was a bit of a fan of Nanini for a while because Dad really? painted my cart up like a Benetton. I had like a little <laughs> Benetton painted side pods, which is funny. But uh, but yeah, so but no, definitely Senna was the the main man. So what'd you first, even now? What, what was the first thing you ever won in a go kart? I won. Yeah. Um, it would have been a club day at Lithgow, so yep. uh, I was only allowed to race at Lithgow until. Um, I think it was my first year I could only go there because mum thought that was the safest place. Yes, mum. So we weren't allowed to go to Oran Park with the big straight and remember oh, yeah. the bridge we used to go over because that was too scary for, for Deanna, for mum. So, uh, so yeah, once I'd won at Lithgow, I was then allowed to travel. So, uh, so yeah, Lithgow definitely was the first one. But I remember I remember my first race, so you, you sort of muck around. And yeah. You had to have a race to it was a mock-up race to get your licence. And um, I came second, so I was pretty pumped. And I still got the trophy. I was only looking at it yesterday when I was at home and stuff. Um, I've got key tro- I've only got a few trophies from my whole career. So I've got um, my world championship ones from karting. Yep. Um, the supercar one, the Japanese um, GT, uh, Formula 3 championship one. Like a couple of the British one, um, just the big ones. And then I was looking at Ed... Um, Sort of at our place, as you look over from upstairs, you can sort of see down onto the top of it. And I saw Kaz had moved the little green sort of, um, <laughs> it was like a green perspex thing that I got with a combined districts car club um, emblem on it. And I thought, oh, no, bitch, she's moved it. So then I'm, <laughs> I climbed up on the thing and moved it back out to the front. She says, what do you got that there for? I said, Kaz, that's the one that started all this. Uh, so I've still got it. Um, and, yeah, that's definitely the the, the first sort of, victory or it wasn't a win but the first sort of trophy that I remember. So when do things start becoming 
more important for you as far as motorsport. And when you start thinking, well, I, I'm better than the other kids at this and other people are starting to look at you saying, James, you're quite good at this. When does that start to happen to you? Um, I was pretty fortunate. It was pretty early on in my career. Like even in um, my first year, I remember I went to the national championship, my first year of racing and qualified fourth. And, so how and old are you at this day? I was eight. Right, eight. Wow. Um, and the right. other guys are up to, I think it was 10 or 11. Um, so I, I was always, went pretty well. Um, and I, I don't want to sound massive headed or anything, but it, yeah, it's all, always sort of came pretty easy to me once yep. I sort of got the hang of it all. So I was pretty serious right from the word go. Um, and I think dad was pretty, uh, not aggressive, but he sort of let me know that you had to work at it. It wasn't just going to come. So, so yeah, we were, we were very, very serious from, from pretty near straight away. So, um, and you're still ticking over at school at this stage. Obviously, you're only in sort eight, of grade yeah. three, grade four, grade yeah, two. Yeah, whatever it is. I don't know. Eight, good my daughter's school? eight. It'll be year three. So right. Zara's nine. She's year four at the moment. So, yeah, it'd be year so three. At, at that stage, you, you know, uh, you're, you're obviously <laughs> learning to read and write and doing all schoolwork. But That's all second. I right. wasn't that is focused. Um, okay. I, there's story digresses, but um, I, I was not interested at school, really. Um, I was, uh, I probably had, I, I know I've got ADHD. I, I was too distracted by everything. Um, you actually got ADHD? Yeah. So I sat, I, I was with, um, we were doing a talk the other week and I was sitting at a table with some doctors and they were talking about it. So it was at a, like a fundraiser thing. And then the, the doctor <laughs> went across the table to me and said, well, I know you've got ADHD. I can tell it by the way you you know, acting and, and all this sort of stuff. I can medicate you if you want to right. help you calm down in situations. And I'm like, mate, I've done all right for myself. Yeah. I, I think I'll uh, manage with what I've got. So I think that probably the only thing that I ever focus on um, aggressively or is probably my racing. Like even um, like even now outside the car and everything, I am a bit of a scatterbrain. I do sort of right. look around and, and easily distracted. But And Karis and my parents... Karis, um, your wife? Yeah, Karis, my wife. My yeah. parents and probably Alan Gow, my manager, find it incredibly strange that I can, I'm so scattered outside, but then when you get in, everything comes on that I can close completely everything off and be so focused on one thing. Um, so it is, it is, um, it's probably the only time that I find it easy to sit and talk or concentrate is, is when I'm in I don't know, my zone, I suppose, right. when I'm in the Well, we better pretend you're cart, sitting in a so. car now. So I, it's funny, <laughs> As you can I, see, I'm talking yeah, and going and doing like all different things. But, mate, I, I had, I, an early episode we did in Series 1 was with Brendan Favola, and I didn't know that he had ADHD. And at that stage, I'd sat with him doing a show called Dead Set Legends on Triple M on a Saturday morning for nearly a year. And sometimes I'd think, this bloke's not even listening to me. Like, he'd be watching the basketball on the telly and he'd be writing a note, he'd be reading the paper, and I'd be saying, mate, this is what we're going to be talking about next. And he said... I can take it in, but there's a million other things going into my brain is the way he explained it to me. Until you And until you realise that about someone, often you think, oh, they're not actually even listening to me or they're off with the fairies or... But, yeah, so that's me. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's... Um, but yeah, so I think... And because school was so much harder for me because of that, I yeah. suppose, and the karting side of things was, was a lot easier or driving and I could get results and praise and all that sort of shit that way, I suppose, yeah. straight away as a kid, you're like, oh... That's too hard. Absolutely. Um, so this is easy. Let's go this. Uh, so yeah. So I um, yeah put all my attention into uh, into karting. Is so. it, without dwelling on it, mate? Is, is there is there ways um, y- you deal with it or get around it or 
you know, does it affect you in ways with your work? How do you deal with something yeah, I like think that? It, I think it does. Um, definitely, I'm not a strong reader or writer, like grammatically, um, you know, spelling is horrendous, all that sort of stuff, just purely, I right. think, because of that whole schooling thing and, and, you know, to learn was always such a, a challenge. Um, but, um, is that hard to say? Like I, I didn't, yeah, I've nev- never spoken about it really. Yeah, um, right. like it's, it's so bizarre. Like now you can put me in, in a conference, like, and we, we have to do it all the time. You talk between, you know, a thousand people and you do it. And, and you're, can, you're fantastic. Yeah, at I can it. sit and I can talk about anything for an hour, but if yep. you give me a paragraph right. and say, read this, I'll be like, uh, 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 cause I'll, you know, all those memories come up and you start to. Remember when you had to read in front of the class and you'd and you'd struggle and yeah, right. so yeah, that's probably uh, that's something that I've never told anyone. But uh, there you go. Yeah. So, mate, and there'll be there'll be people, and that's the great thing about this. There'll be people listening to this that go, "Geez, I didn't know that." And there'll be kids that are listening to this, and they'll think, "Oh, I, I struggle with that." But then look at this bloke; he's flying, which is mm. and I suppose it's um, something that I probably kept really, really quiet until later in my career when I met Jackie Stewart, and then Jackie, I found out Jackie. Couldn't can't read pretty much and write either. So right. it was um, sort of then you sort of and you realise that a lot of successful people have yeah you know struggled with with that a similar sort of thing and and that but then when you find something that you are massively massively focused on yep. that you know it does engulf you right. So 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 when you're looking at you know and I spend time in your garages and I can't figure out what all those squiggly lines are with acceleration and braking and numbers and, and they hand a sheet to you is that no problem for you because that's ingraining what you do now to decipher that type of information yeah so that's fine like in the car stuff because I'm interested in it and it's you know it's it's all about you know going faster yep. and and I'm in that zone I suppose. So you're sort of in depth with it all, and you're looking and you're talking about it all and everything. But it's more probably um, like after when you're sitting and you're you're writing your report and all that sort of stuff that it's when you it's not the easiest time. But um, yeah, as for you know my work sort of thing, like driving the car and and um, over all the data and all that sort of stuff, that's that's easy. So because you're interested about it. So you're going well as a carter, or as you said, you you left. Australia at what age? Uh, 14, 15. 14. So tell me about the lead up to that. You're eight. Tell me about the, pr- the process of getting to 14 and leaving. And now you've told me that as a young bloke that probably wasn't that confident with reading and writing. That's a bloody big step, that is. Yeah, so I raced here, obviously, until I was uh, 14. So we, we won the Australian titles. I can't remember how many times. So we obviously we were going really good. And, and um, you know, I went... I th- at one point, I went two years, I think, without losing a race. Right. Um, and what? mum and dad then, at right at that point as well, went through. Um, dad had a bad a business dealing that went bad, so financially we couldn't race anymore. So, and I probably wasn't enjoying it as much because everyone was saying we were cheating. So we just decided to pack it in for a while. Cheating because you were dominating. Yeah, because we yeah because it was all going pretty good. So we we stopped racing for a while. Um, I had a motorbike, so I started riding motocross a lot more because we lived on an acreage. Mm-hmm. Um, had a bit bit of a shunt a few months, or probably six, eight months afterwards. Cut all my chest open, and and uh, then Mum decided on I a was, bike. Yeah, what'd you do? Should have been at school. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a good starting point for yeah. any story. So we used to back onto a national park, and we could ride the motorbike and push bikes to to school and part and. Like, put up against a tree at the back and cut a hole in the back of the school fence and come through the school. And one day maybe got a little distracted from school. 
um, decided that we were having a bit too much fun in the in the fire trails. Yeah. And uh, come around the corners after a storm, a tree was down. Got the front over, but sort of couldn't get the whole bike over. So anyway, crashed and, uh, yeah, handlebar cut all my yeah. chest. So then obviously that was a bit emotional. Had to explain that I wasn't at school when yeah. it happened and all that sort of stuff. But, um, but yeah, so then mum didn't want to race anymore. And I said to dad, hey, let's have another crack at karting if you can. So he borrowed a kart from one of his mates and an engine and we went and it was a Wollongong street race. So I hadn't raced for, I think, 10 months and rolled up with someone's old gear and we ended up winning the race. And then a guy called Jim Morton, who uh, was the importer for DAP chassis at that time, um, saw that we won and, and um, knew dad's position because dad and him had known each other for a long time. And, and dad, I remember, had to get some chain oil or some crap. Or, and Jim was a Castrol-sponsored team. And because dad and Jim knew each other and we wouldn't have to buy it, dad went and asked me to go and ask Jim if we could borrow some. So... We weren't going to give the chain oil back. But, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I went up to Jim and said, hey, um, Dad asked if we could have some chain oil. So then he gave it to us and he said, oh, I'll tell your Dad to come up. So then I went back down and we did the thing and said, Dad, Jim wants to talk to you. So then Dad went up there and anyway, Jim said um, to Dad, oh, we'll look after him. So uh, so yeah, that was probably a turning point where it all started to get you know very serious. So it starts to get serious. How all of a sudden do you end up getting on a plane as a 14-year-old? Yeah, so then I raced here um, for a year with Jim with the DAP chassis, which was horrendous, but um, we ended up still doing really well. I think we come second in the national championship. Um, I think Christian Jones won, right. Alan's son, yep. um, which we should have won, but we the DAP engine was horrendous and kept blowing up, so Christian won. Um, and then, not that I'm making excuses, never my fault. <laughs> but uh, a motor racing driver <laughs> ever has. I've never interviewed one where he said, yeah, it was my fault today. But anyway, I'm sure that day will come at some point. Uh, yeah, so then Jim um, decided to change manufacturers and started importing Tony Kart, which is probably the biggest brand in karting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have an international race every year. It's in January. We did have. And all the European guys would come out. Um, and this year they brought out European juniors. Um, so normally it's just the senior blokes that come out, but they brought out some hotshot juniors out and I ended up winning. And so I beat all the, the Euro blokes and it was the first time that an Australian guy had beat the Euro guys. Any blokes that have gone to kick on in that field that you've beaten? Um, at that race meeting, there wasn't. Um, but then, so from that race, then I the team boss or the Tony Cart manufacturer worldwide Rabatsi, Robbie Rabatsi said to um, my dad, hey, you should enter James for the Junior World Championship. I think he's got some talent. I think he'll do pretty well. So um, and dad, on the way home, dad told me and said, hey, mate, it's, you know, these guys have asked if you want to do the World Championship. He said, it's fantastic they've asked, but, you know, I can't afford it. And Jim can't. We can't ask Jim for it. But, um, yeah, so it's nice that they asked, but, you know, we'll just keep going on. So obviously a little upset on the quiet ride home. Yeah. But, you know, then you get over it. You're a kid. You're distracted, as it was easy for me. <laughs> um, so you're pressing on, and then it was about – Two weeks before the the event, the Rabati called Jim Morton and said, "Why, why hasn't James entered?" Where's the event? Uh, it was in Portugal, right? So it's a oh, week wow. long thing. Um, so they said to you know Jim, and then Jim gave Rabati Dad's number. Anyway, they called and said, "Why, why haven't you entered?" Dad said, "Told them a position we can't afford it." And then um, Robbie said, "Okay, we'll just um, organize a time off of school and get him here, and we'll take care of it." So, um, really? so yeah, so two weeks later I flew to Portugal. I'd never been outside of New South Wales, let alone to another country. Did you go with your dad? 
Yeah, so we flew over, um, landed. It's a week-long event because of, uh, obviously, World Championship for kids. You can't sort of travel all over, so everyone flew in for the week. It's like a big knockout thing. Um, practice, I was there with the with yeah the factory team and driving around. I remember saying to my dad, how am I doing? He goes, oh, you, yeah, just push a bit harder. You know, go a bit – because your dad's your sort of – yeah driver coach and everything so yeah he's uh, telling me all that sort of stuff and then we go into qualifying i'm like oh yeah how are we doing and he goes oh you, you'll be right just you know just go and do your best we'll see how you go at the end of it so anyway go out and qualifying come back in i'm like still have no idea my pace to everyone because dad wouldn't tell me and i'm like how do we go and he's like oh you're first and i'm like you're holy pulse. shit <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean so then i started panicking anyway and i remember um <laughs> So then I, I still remember because Ryan Briscoe was there with me. We were there at the same time. And so Ryan and I, these two, like we didn't grow until we were, you know, 17 pretty much. So we're midgets. Yeah. And all the Euro blokes have got beards and gold <laughs> chains and all this sort of stuff. And I remember going to the um, the driver's briefing and I walked in and because it's the first time I'd sort of been around all the other people because you're in your own little tent. Mm. And these guys are massive and they're, like I said, beards and chains. And I remember um, – Antonio Liuzzi, who raced for Red Bull, yeah. was standing there with Alonso, who's now races for McLaren. They were both standing there. And uh, Ryan and I walked in, and, and Liuzzi looked at Ryan and I, because Ryan was doing well, and Cadets, the class under mine, pointed at me and then just, like, put his finger across his throat like he's going to kill me. And I was like, holy shit, Ryan, did you see that? And he's like, oh. So Ryan and I huddled in the corner, and all these, all these Euro kids are like, Death staring us because we're these two little Punks. blokes that had come from nowhere, little blonde haired little uh, grasshoppers, and and uh, yeah. So then, anyway, we went on to to the race meeting, and I won every heat. I won the pre final and I won the final, so and, and got the fastest lap in every race. So it was it was quite a dominant performance. Um, and James Courtney with the little victory slides. Oh, I can just imagine shouting to himself inside the helmet. There, a fantastic job. A great drive-through to take the world championship. And then after that, Rabati said to Jim, uh, to Jim, my dad, yep. um, said, you can go home and we can pat each other on the back and say this was fantastic or, you know, I'd like him to stay and race for, you know, me in the race team and I'll look after him and he can live with me or live in, in Italy with the team and, you know, we can take care of all this stuff. So... So, uh, so yeah, that's when it, then the whole European side thing started. And I managed to win another world championship. Um, yeah, I should have won the world championship again that next year in 96, but we had a throttle cable broke when I was third. And um, I finished the last 10 laps driving on the carburetor. Like, cause the, <laughs> yeah. the cable was broken, so I was using my hand. to. But the weird thing is your foot still works when you're using your hand. Yeah, right. Uh, so I think I still came fourth or something. But, um, so but yeah, I managed to win it the year after again. Uh, so you're living in Europe at this stage? Yeah, so I moved. Um, I was 15, 14, something like that, and moved to Italy by myself. Wow, where'd you, where'd you uh, move to? So I lived, first part I lived in a hotel. Um, which As a what? As a? 14-year-old. Um, and How was then, your Italian? I couldn't speak any. Uh, <laughs> so I, it was, I, got, I was going to get pretty hungry pretty quick if I didn't. <laughs> start yeah. to learn but um that was probably the hardest thing going from um yeah my mum was a very doting mm. mother and then to go and be all of a sudden in a foreign country by yourself where you can't communicate with anyone you've got no family there um At you know 14. you have to do everything for yourself clothes like washing like little things that you don't even think about yeah um 
it was uh, that was probably the hardest. It was like it was fun and and um, you know I'd never change what happened, but that was incredibly hard. Like on the through the week when you're there, it was all right because I'd be in at the factory with the boys, but on the weekends and long weekends and when there was holidays and you like because I didn't know anyone um, and the Pravali, the village where I lived was tiny. You'd sit in the like in the apartment that I ended up being in for like three days at a time by yourself with no one watching a TV that you couldn't understand. So you, you do pick up the language really quite quickly um, in that you're like a sponge when you're that age and because yeah. you're hearing it around all the time. So I, I did learn. I could speak Italian and read it and all that sort of stuff. I probably spoke Italian better than I spoke English through all that period. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was pretty heavy. Were there times on those long weekends where you started to question as a 14-year-old, this is all worth it? Do I want to go home? You must yeah, I remember sick. sitting there as like with it snowing outside and all sorts of stuff and just being like all shit homesick. Yeah. Because um, you go from having you know a tight family unit to then all of a sudden mm. the other side of the world by yourself. So I remember like sitting there and like you'd just be like nothing to do because I – couldn't go outside because, you know, it'd be snowing through winter and all that sort of stuff or, you know, you didn't have any way of transport, you didn't know where you were going. Um, so, yeah, it was um, – that was probably the hardest part and you couldn't ring home because of the expense of this phone calls. Skype and – Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, there's no Facebook, there's no nothing. Yeah. Text messaging was just starting. I remember I got an Italian girlfriend, she taught me how to text. But, um, yeah, that was probably the hardest part, sitting there and – like you'd be sitting, like I remember as a young kid sitting there and just looking out the window and just crying, just by yourself, just so lonely. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, the racing, you know, I was, I was loving and that was so rewarding, that side of it. But like with anything, you have good and bad and tough things and, and um, yeah. How's your Italian now? Um, it's fun. Like to speak, it's hard to um, to get the words, but it's funny when you go to a restaurant, it comes back. Right. Like you can... Here, like it's funny, um, Kaz and I were in uh, Chadston, not far from here. Yep. There, there's an Italian pizza joint and we were sitting there and we we're having lunch and I just started laughing. Karis was like, what? And there's a, a table of um, muscly blokes sitting beside us when I've got all their gym gear on, yep. muscles hanging out, and the Italian waitresses were talking in Italian to each other about the blokes. Ah, okay. And I was just laughing my ass. Karis was like, what, what, what? <laughs> anyway, so I was translating for her what they were saying. So then it was funny because she would be at the table and they would be, like the blokes were sitting there and, and the girls were talking across the top of them like, oh, this one's mine. Check out his arms. And, and they're like serving them their food and the guys are thinking that they're, you know, being polite and saying, oh, thank you and all this sort of stuff. So I was translating to Kaz. So that's probably my only use for Italian now is dumping people in it. But um, and they weren't saying anything about you, Skinny, at the time? No, they did comment about Kaz. Right. Um, but, um, but, yeah, <laughs> no, it was pretty funny. Back to James in a moment. Now, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks a new podcast MJ and I have been working on for our partners at Podcast One. It'll be out before Christmas. It's a series of audio documentaries drilling really deep into some of Australia's best sports stories. Some you may think you may know, but it'll be surprised by. Some you may not have heard, but all of them, they're chock full of emotion, action, disaster, triumph, everything you want in a sports story. The series will be called The Moment. Here's a little taste. 
The seconds are ticking. I'm certainly thinking, along with 80,000, that, yeah, that something's going to happen. Just to get to this point has taken everything you have. The reality is I could die. I could die in three days. I could die in three weeks. I could die in a month. I'll never forget. I looked over my left shoulder and the flames were just roaring up my T-shirt and up my neck. So just panic, panic stations. Will you succeed or will you fail? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum saying that I wanted to come home, like actually crying. It was... Like, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I, I just sat in my room. Will you be the hero or the villain? And I hit the ball and then I heard a loud bang. But it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. Will it be glory? Yeah. It was so wonderful that he actually achieved that through all that struggle. Or will it be regret? Oh, it was... Um, oof, that's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time. It all comes down to one single moment. So I was just like, all right, this is it. Let's let's go for it. After everything has happened, can you still do it? Can you still get the footy? Comes over, he shakes my hand, and he goes, how are you feeling? I said, I'm nervous as hell. He goes, you're going to win? This walk was, I enjoyed every step of it. It was, you're going to take Australia to the World Cup. The moment. Yeah, that's it, the moment. Coming soon to Podcast One, free as always. Now, next week on the Howie Games... I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Pretty excited by this. A man that led Australia to one of its most memorable sporting moments ever, winning the 1983 America's Cup. He was the skipper of the famous 12-metre yacht Australia 2, and his name is John Bertrand. This is a man who, with a tight-knit team around him, achieved a sporting high reached by a few others, but at the end of it, fated as he was as a hero by millions, John struggled with what was next. Probably about a year and a half after we came back, Rose and I, um, I was up on a farm in uh, Wagga uh, with Rose, and I was in one of the paddocks there, and I just I couldn't talk. Uh, it's called depression now, but there was no word for it then. So it took me quite a while, a long time, to uh, to move through that uh, world where I endeavoured to find the next phase of or the next chapter of my life. And the best advice I had was from a very good friend, um, a guy called David Howes, and he said, you, you know, John, the best thing you can do is walk and talk, see how other people are making a living, how... And the, and the advice I give young people who are, you know, the swimmers, for example, is it's really important to endeavour to understand how other people go about their business, to find out the next passion in their life. And that's what I did. So I talked to a lot of people before I started to, you know, get myself out of, the, uh, uh, out of that environment. That's John Bertrand next week on the Howie Games. Now... By the way, with today's episode, please listen right through to the very end because MJ, after his epic, epic Lewis Hamilton fail, well, he's got a bit more advice coming his way. All right, back to John. So, yeah, I guess you're getting a little bit older. You ended up uh, you ended up racing in the UK. Yeah, yeah so that all come about. So, I, um, yeah, so 96, I was fourth in the... World Championship. 97, I won the World Championship again in seniors. In the carts? Yeah, in go-karts. In, in, the, in the seniors. Yeah, and right. then uh, 98, you I rolled. You must have been up against some pretty decent steerers at that stage. Uh, yeah, it's all the guys that are racing now. Like it's Alonzo, Jensen Button, um, Raikkonen, um, yeah, everyone. Nico what? and Lewis. Um, Was it? What, what, what was old my if, man Kimmy like at that stage? Which Kimmy is, is uh, chatty as he is nowadays. Yeah, exactly the same. <laughs> but I got some amazing stories. 
about all those guys, which you probably I can't say, but it's um because we're all grew now up. you can't you can't just tempt the audience with that, JC. Tell us what you can tell us about those guys as young men. Um, because well, we all were, you know, a similar sort of thing that we, um, sort of all moved away from our families, or we we're all racing in Europe as young kids, like from fourteen together. Mm. So apart from them wanting to kill me at the at the start, mm. once they got to know me, they I think they accepted me, um, but. It was, yeah, it was really good, sort of good group of blokes that we all raced hard with and and, um, and through all those times. And, you know, it was even like Danica Patrick was in, in that crew, um, Hunter Ray. There was like all American blokes as well as because we were all, at that point, it was um, if you wanted to race, you know, Formula 1, you'd go to Europe and you'd race karts. Yep. Then you'd go to England and do, you know, Formula Ford, Formula 3, and then, then you were there. So... We sort of from 14 through to I was 23 with that like there was a nine year period where you're with you're racing the same blokes so you got to know everyone really well and you know through that stage you're experimenting with booze and, yeah. and partying and all that sort of stuff so obviously the Finnish can drink vodka pretty well so, <laughs> so Kimmy was always so good at that Kimmy thing. was uh, was always good at that um, but yeah it, it um, so all the English sort of speaking guys so I suppose the Finnish guys speak English. Um, and Jensen and uh, Alex Davison, uh, Anthony Davison, Alex yep. Davison's Will's brother, um, yep. and myself and Ryan Briscoe, Pat Long, the American guy who raced for Porsche, Danica. They'd sort of get in groups where if you went somewhere, you'd all go together because you're speaking mm. speak English and it was just easier. So um, And then, yeah, so I ended up digressed the. It's all right. <laughs> this is about digressing this conversation. Yeah, so anyway, so we all raced karts and then, so 97, I won the world championship with uh, pretty much the whole of the F1 paddock through my sort of age group were, yeah. were there. And, um, and just to uh, interrupt you very quickly, they obviously also saw you as the man to beat. Who did you see as the man to beat? Like, if you would think, right, if I beat him, I'm probably going to win. Um, it's pro- the, the most talented guy who I ever came up against, or yeah. there's two would be... Oh, th- it'd be Jensen, Kimmy, and Alonzo. I'd say would be the three right. sort of standout guys, and probably out of all of them, I'd say Alonzo was probably the the uh, yeah the, the the best. Like now, when everyone says who's the best in F one that you've raced against, I say Alonzo. Yeah, that's what Weber said as well. The, yeah. the best he'd raced against. So you're smoking these guys. Yeah. So well. anyway, yeah, and then ninety eight. Um, I rolled in the final, was third with Gandolfi, a little midget, fired us off. But, uh, yeah, so then karting was over. Or it wasn't over, but big gym. My dad said, rightio, mate, you're 18 now. You've you've had fun. You've lived overseas. You've experienced it all. We had a crack at it. I can't afford to go car racing. Um, no one's paying for you, so uh, you've got to come come back. So, Which can't be easy for your dad because he sees that you've got all this potential. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, he obviously as a parent – being a parent now, you want to be able to give your kids everything they want. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it would have been incredibly tough for him um, and mum, not only with me being away for all that time, but then also to have to be the person that's bringing you back, I yeah. suppose, would have been really tough. But my dad's a realist and he knows that, um, you know, I had to do something with my life. I couldn't race a go-kart forever, mm. even though I was getting looked after. Um, so, yeah, he said, come back, mate. Let's, um, you know start getting a trade or whatever, we can still try and do some sort of car thing here and we'll try and put, piece something together. So I came back to Australia. Um, to do what? It was just at the end of the year. I uh, came back and I think it was when Bathurst was on. Um, it was when the two-litre Bathurst was yep. on. So then 
Um, I went up there as a guest for, for Castrol, I think it was, or someone. Um, so I was up at the, the race and I knew Neil Crompton because Neil had interviewed me a heap of times. And so I saw Neil well, I, and, um, and Peter Brock were standing together and Peter sort of had a bit to do with him through the Grand Prix. He was always interested in what was going on. So then Peter and Neil and I were all talking and then he's, um, they said, oh, what's going on for next year? And I said, well, the dream's over. I've got to come back. I'm starting work with Dad on Monday. Um, going to be a carpet layer. Um, yeah, so it's all over. We can't afford to go car racing. And Dad wants me to get sort of into the family business. And then I suppose he wanted me to take it over. So sorry, Dad. Um, <laughs> and then Neil was like, oh, you can't, can't stop. And I'm like, well, you don't really have a choice. Uh, he said, well, don't, don't, um, don't give up on it. I'll have, I know a few people. I'll have a chat with a few people and get back to you. So I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> Plenty of times. It's that type of industry, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I went, watched the weekend, went home on the Monday. I was with dad and then Neil called and said, hey, I've got a guy I'd really like you to meet. He wants to meet with you and discuss what possibly could happen. Um, are you free tomorrow? So I looked at dad and said, can we go into the city tomorrow, dad? And uh, <laughs> Just put the carpet laying off for a yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, let's just put, the, put it off for a day. So, uh, so yeah, dad and I went in and the guy that we met was Alan Gow. Um, at the time, Alan owned the British Touring Car Championship. Um, and Alan sat me down and went through it all and sort of asked me what my goals were and, and you know, he knew my history. And then and your goals were? Be a Formula One world champion. Yep. Um, at that age, that's all, that's since I was eight, that's was yep. my focus. Um, and then Alan sort of sat me down and said, look, it's, it's not that easy. And I said, oh, I, I realise that. And, and um, but, you know, I'm motivated, I'm willing to do whatever it takes and, and anyway, I spoke with Alan for about maybe an hour or two and, and Alan then at the end said, look, I like what I'm hearing. I think you're obviously very, very talented. Um, motorsport has been very good for him. He'd made a lot of money out of it. He's an Australian guy, Alan. He was born here in Melbourne. He was a used car salesman, so he's slightly shady <laughs> or very shady. Um, so <laughs> Hello to Alan. Yeah, thanks, Gowie. So, uh, so yeah, then Al said, hey, look, um, you know, I'm willing to take a pun on you. Motorsport's been great for me. I've made good money out of it. Um, I'd like to see someone come through. Um, I'm willing to pay your first year in car racing, and but I'll only ever pay the first year. And if we make it, or if you make it, then you're mine. Yeah. Um, and if if you don't, we had a crack. We both, you know, I gave something back. You had a crack, but um, you know, we'll see how we go. So um, so yeah. So I, I said that sounds fantastic. So two weeks later, I moved to England. And live with a guy that I'd met for an hour and a half, him and his family. So you moved in with him? Yes, I moved in with Big Al. Um, what type of commitment financially would he have been putting into getting you going for a season? Uh, Any idea? Uh, it probably would have been Formula Ford, British Formula Ford. It was with Van Diemen, so the factory team. Yeah. Um, oh, far out. would have been... I could text him and ask him. But I'd say it would probably be about a couple of hundred thousand pounds. Right. I'll text him. He's. We'll, we'll get back to that. We've never done this before on the How Are Games. We'll wait for that text to come through. Uh, James is just texting Gowie at the moment to find out just how much he spent on his career. I would have thought you may have an idea about that, James. But anyway, you'll get I, that I know that he's made a lot more out of me than what he put in. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, see, I have to. I can't do two things at once. I had to stop talking. But uh, but yeah, so Alan had a big risk, so he put it in, put the money in for me, and then. Um, the racing and I lived with him and he paid all my, obviously he fed me and looked yeah. after me and 
gave me a car and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, yeah, the whole open wheeler career started. So that first year I was teammates with, with Ambrose. At Van Diemen. Marcus well, Ambrose. Yeah, prior to that, we, I was with, um, so Ricardo Van Der Rand's a Dutch guy. Um, Neil Shanahan was an Irish cat that was my teammate, and then me. Uh, we all raced together. Halfway through the year, Neil uh, died in the, in, a, in the car, in the race car. Were you there? Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was a really hard time for me. It was the first time I'd sort of experienced death with someone close to you. What happened? Can I ask uh, you? Yeah, yeah. It was at Alton Park. Um, it was coming up the hill at Alton Park. It sort of comes up and swoops to the left before a double fast right-hander. Uh, Neil and, and probably my best, one of my good mates, uh, Craig, 120K he just sent me. Right. So that's how there much you go. put in. So. Okay, 120,000 pounds. Yeah. Right. So then... Um, it's a quarter of a million dollars he's putting in at this stage. Yeah, so then we're coming up the hill. Oh, no, I'm coming up the hill. I was in front of them, thank God. And um, Craig and Neil touched. Neil went into the wall. It was right at the start of the, the whole wheel tethers. So right. That was 99. Um, this is where the wheels are attached to the car. If you have an accident, they don't yep, go yep. off and so, hit the um, grandstand. But obviously everyone's still learning about it. And when Neil hit the wall, the, the wheel, because it was attached by a tether, and with a Formula 4, the cockpit's open, the wheel came in and killed him, hit him in the head, pushed his, broke his neck, pushed his helmet down, punched all his organs with his ribs. Um, and because you don't have a radio when you're in Formula Ford, as we came around, like you go past. So I slowed down to look to see how bad the damage was to tell the team because we were teammates. Um, and, yeah, I saw... All the whole visor of his helmet was ripped off. The jaw of his helmet was was open, and there was a lot of stuff coming out of his helmet. So um, that was that was pretty hard to see because not only the accident, but but that. So um, so yeah, that was that was pretty hard. The tragic death has taken place of one of Ireland's most promising racing drivers. 19-year-old Neil Shanahan was killed earlier today following a crash at the Alton Track in Cheshire. He died, died of injuries sustained during the fifth round of the British Formula 4 Championship. So, yes, I suppose it, it brought... Because you always think that it's dangerous, but you never really think about the that side of it, that it, you can, really can die. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was... As I was 18, 19, that was pretty tough. So... The obvious question always in this circumstance, mate, is how you go back and get in a car. Is it because you're 18 yourself and you're bulletproof and it's not going to happen to you? Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, I, I never really, to be honest, I never thought about it. I think the love of what I did sort of overpowered anything. I, like I, I never thought getting back into it was, holy crap, that could happen to me. It was. I'm, I suppose I'm quite... I don't know, weird or strange, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I'd rather it happen with something that I was doing that I was loved, mm. that I loved. Um, but still, seeing it sort of brought it all to to the front, I suppose. So and, and I so, remember. Yeah, no, go on, mate. Go on. Yeah, and, and then afterwards, because yeah, you could see how bad it was. So they obviously flew him away from the circuit. Um, Alan, my manager, who we just spoke about, was the the boss of the British Touring Car Championship. So he oversee. We raced at the British Touring Car Rounds. So we knew that it was bad, and then I remember Alan came down, and Marino, Frank Kitty, and I were best mates, and Craig, who was in the other car, we were sitting there, and Alan sort of took us to the side and said, "Hey, look, it hasn't been announced yet, but Neil's passed away," and told us, and and um, yeah, that was bad. 
Um, I can see talking to you about it now, it's almost like you're back there. I don't know how often you talk about this type of thing, mate, but what... what <laughs> never. <laughs> well, never. I, I presume that was the case. So so what does a team do in that situation? You just talked about the fact what you did, but what does a team do? Like, What happens at the next test or the next race? Um, I suppose, these are really personal questions, I understand. Yeah, no, it's all right. Um, for me, I think Alan just wanted to get me away from the situation, so... Um, Marino Franchitti's brother, Dario Franchitti, raced champ car. Yep. Um, and I think it was, I think it was just after, I think it was right about, it was either the month before or the month after Greg Moore died in the champ car. Mm. Um, and Greg and Dario were really, really close. So Dario had just, was either, I think he had just, I think it just happened to Dario with Greg. So Dario, so Marino called his brother straight away and we were sitting there and so Mino called Dario to say, hey, fuck, this has happened. Um, and then Dario said, look, he has a house in Scotland. So he said, look, you boys just get your shit together and go up there for a couple of weeks because we had a couple of weeks between things. So Alan gave us some money and Dario gave us the house and we just pretty much young blokes do. Yeah. Got together, went up there and just, you know, got through it, I guess. It's... um. It was uh, yeah, pretty tough. Neil was a he was a good bloke, um, or still is, but um, he was a pretty it's good prankster. We he was really he was very very talented, um, and we were probably competing for it was going to be between him and I as to who was going to be the lead driver the next year because it's always a two year program. Yeah. So it was Neil and I were playing as as well as we were racing very hard on the track. It was a lot of um, emotional or mental games as well outside of the car. So we were very fierce competitors, but really good mates. It's a weird thing to say. Like Neil was a crazy prankster. Like he'd um, fuck with your car, let your tires down, take your wheels off, hide your wheels, like it was your road car, all this sort of stuff. And I remember on the way that morning, we woke up and we stole, didn't steal, we borrowed from Dunlop a whole heap of wheel weights and we put like a kilo in each in each corner of his like on his front left and his rear right wheel. So it just, and we drove past him on the way to the track that morning and he's like doing 30 on the side <laughs> of the road with the thing shaking to the shit house. and he gets to the parks the car and he's jacking it up trying to look for problems. Um, so we're always joking with each other and I, it's, um, yeah, and but he never got to get me back for that one. But, um, but yeah, so that was, that was really probably uh, one of the hardest times, I suppose, and being, you know, alone so to speak because you're there by so alan alan was there but i was still only very new in that relationship that we had um and you know marino and i were very very close and craig but still you don't i don't only knew these people for you know maybe six seven months so yeah. it was still very very fresh and and at that point all you want to do is be around your family and all that sort of stuff but you couldn't afford to go back and so it was um yeah we pretty much just went to Dara's house and got drunk for two weeks. So let's let's move on from there. Um, we don't need to dwell on what you've been telling me there. You obviously went and had a lot of success. You won. Yeah, so I ended up winning the British Formula 4 Championship the next year. And um, moved up from that again. Yeah, and then that opportunity, then I was trying to do Formula 3, but it was, again, it was a big financial increase and... Alan wasn't going to pay for it. We we knew that he was only ever going to pay the first year, so I had to rely on. At the time, there was a uh, there was a Renault Junior program, um, and then there was the Jaguar one. So it was pretty 
hard to get in with, with how many people there were. But um, at the end, when I won the British Formula 4 Championship, I got asked by Jaguar to go and do a test. There was, I think, 12 guys from a couple of German guys that won their championships, um, me that won the British Formula 4 Championship, Anthony Davison, who came second in that, um, Formula 3 guy from that same year in in England um, there's a couple of Spanish guys like they got pretty much the guys that won from each category right. and then uh, and so the Jaguar is the so it was, it was Stuart the Grand Prix Stuart, wasn't yeah. it? Then it, it used to be Stuart Jaguar. Grand Prix and then Jackie it turned and to Paul. Jaguar yeah right. so it was the first year I think that it t- changed to Jaguar right. so at that time when we we're doing it, it was still called or when we we're testing it, it was still called Stuart, Stuart, I think. The white car with the tartan down the side. Yeah, but our cars were going to be, it was always going to be Jaguar. They'd already announced it, I think, that it was all changing over. So what did you, what, what did the test? What so did the, the test was, we all flew to Valencia. Yep. Um, it was a two-day test. They did um, three guys on the first day. In what, in an F1 car? F3 car. Right, F3. Um, so, or maybe the six, six guys first day and six guys second day. Anyway, the first day was fine. Second day got rained out, so... We sat and watched everyone go the first day. Second day, we couldn't do anything. So um, a week later, we then went to Budapest in Hungary to test the um, Hungara ring. Ripping spot. It's a great place. Funny story from that night. But it, mm. um, So we, we go out and to the test and we arrive in the morning and then there's it's winter, so there's ice everywhere. So they're like, okay, it's, it's, um, it's too icy, we'll wait a bit. And then they went out and they kept checking. Right here, track's fine. So it's your turn. So it's first time I've driven um, an F3 car, so I'm pretty nervous. With Jaguar, the F1 team were running the test because Luciano Berti, who was the F1 driver, was he came and did the whole European circuits with us right. um, to get miles in the car for when because he, he was doing F1 with the F1 team the next year just to learn the tracks. So, um, so yeah, all the F1 boys are there. I'm, I'm cacking myself. And um, I go out of the pits around turn one, down the hill and comes and then it goes to the left and then you go to a right and it goes along and then up a hill to a really quick left. So as I come out, I'm like, oh, <laughs> ice spun into the fence, ripped the whole side out of the car on the outlap. On the outlap? On the outlap. And I'm just like, I got out of the car and I was just sitting on the side and I'm like, oh, blowing, you fool. <laughs> Whatever chance you had on the outlap, of making JC. it, you have just completely annihilated any chance of it. And I was like, kill it, like punching, like so angry. And I could hear Luciano come out in the other car. He comes down and I'm standing on the, like waiting because I can hear on the radio. They're like, oh, come in. James is off. Uh, so I'm standing there and as he comes up the thing. <laughs> into the fence, into my car, I jump out of the way. <laughs> Thank you, Luciano. And I'm just like, you beauty. <laughs> Thank you, brother. You beauty. So I'm on the side and I'm like sprinting over the car. Ice, did you hit ice? And he's like, yes, yes. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so then, um, then we... Obviously packed up for that day, and they rebuilt the car, and we went the next day, and I was quickest. So uh, you were quickest. So yeah. So then I um then I got the drive with them. Um. Uh yeah. So then I got the the um the F three drive, and and um we had the F three team was alongside the F one team. The F one cars were in you know here, like on one side of the workshop, and then ten meters away was the F three cars. So it was you know, for me, it was my dream come true. I was yep. in the F one environment and all that sort of stuff. So I did three years with those guys. So I tested the F1 car for those three years and raced the uh, F3 car. Um, the first year in the F3 car, I think we were fourth in the championship, maybe third. Yep. 
Um, I won my first ever race in the F3 car. It was the first, the only ever time Jaguar won a Grand Prix in an open wheeler is with me. Right. Um, cool. I remember uh, at the at Silverstone, it was. Um, it was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and then the F1 team wanted to focus more on the to stop the the junior program and and put all their resource into the F1. So then they they still paid for my racing, but put me with Carlin Motorsport, which was the the team that had won the F3 championship the last three years in a row and with mm-hmm. the guns. Um, it was just Adrian Burgess, who's now my team boss. He was running my car. He was my engineer. Um, so then I went over there and Adrian and I, I think, dominated, like we pretty much won everything up until June. Uh, June, I was testing the F1 car at Monza and we had a rear suspension failure um, up into Ascaria. I hit the wall still doing 325 kilometers an hour. I was pretty screwed up. Then they wouldn't let me race for three months. So I ended up losing the British... F3 championship because I missed out on, I think, three or four rounds, something like right. that. Um, but, yeah, we, so we should have won the British Formula, four, uh, Formula 3 championship then as well. So Now, last week on the Bruce McAvaney episode, I mentioned about recording Howie Games episodes with regular people. So if you've got loved ones, friends, someone that has inspired you or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity... Well, we could probably organise to sit down and record an episode Howie Games style. I've been blown away by the number of responses this week. Truly, great to see so many people are keen to get involved in this. If it's something you would like to consider, please send me an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com, and we'll try and get it sorted out for you. All right, last week on the Howie Games, we were stoked to feature Bruce McAvaney, the great man. He was open, he was candid, he was passionate, and he was quite reflective. My life could have gone one of two ways, I reckon. If I'd stayed in the public service, I'd be unfulfilled. I'd be probably a heavy gambler and a heavy drinker and frustrated. Um, I'd still have an innate happiness about me because I've always had it. It's what I was born with. But I'd be unfulfilled. Um, So how lucky am I, eh? So if you haven't already, please have a listen to the star that is Bruce. All righty, back to James. So you've skipped ahead a bit there and about the part where it gets um, people Hard find again. this. Well, people find this really interesting. Uh, your first time in a Formula One car. Was Eddie Irvine involved at Jaguar at that stage? He was. Eddie was the lead driver, so a great role model. Um, so this is, this is the bike <laughs> that he's the second person I ever interviewed in my life. I had to get up and interview Michael Schumacher at the launch of Ferrari. And I asked him a question in front of 250 people. He said, I'm sorry, I don't understand your accent. And I had two questions. I asked him again. He said, I'm sorry, I don't understand your accent. So that's Boom. the first person so done. done. But then we had a one-on-one with Eddie Irvine. And he said, fuck, so many times in the interview that we couldn't use the interview yeah. either. So that was how I... That was good. So I, I know Eddie Irvine from that. But I've been told a story that before you got an F1 car for the first time, you might have asked Eddie for a bit of advice yeah. in so the transporter. So that's first time was 2000 and- one. Um, so it was at Monza, my first ever test. Brilliant place. Probably the worst place to get your F1 wheels, but because uh, it's 381 kilometres now or something crazy. Yeah, through scary. the park. A beautiful, beautiful place. So, um, so yeah, so I'm at, I'm at the, I arrived the day before my test because he was testing that day. So we go out on a track walk in the morning with him and, and uh, walking around and, and uh, he's sort of giving me some pointers and all that sort of stuff. I can see that I'm absolutely shitting myself. Yeah. 
So he tests all that day. I'm standing watching. And then the morning of the of my test, Eddie was still there. He was flying out. But he was there and he's, we're in the motorhome. And I am completely shitting myself, like like the scaredest I've ever <laughs> been. So I'm sitting there and, um, yeah, you look a little worried. And I'm, I can't do an Irish accent. I was like, yeah. And he said, well, it's best to scare the shit out of yourself straight away and then it'll all be okay. So I'm like, <laughs> it sounds like right. a year one. What, what should I do then? And he goes, well, just down pit lane because it's got the speed limiter. As you get to the end, just 100% throttle and hit the limiter and it will just fire up. You'll scare yourself all over, be over and done with something. All right, so going down the pit, down the pit lane. Come to the end, Eddie said, go flat out. So I put 100% throttle, hit the button, and it was like I was shot out of the cannon. It was bull- By the time I realised what was happening, I was already at turn one. Right. Um, and then I'm on the brakes and I'm like, which way do I take paddles down? Because my head's just completely spinning from the amount of it because it had auto upshift. Wow. So then I'm like, which one's down? And I'm working out and I'm like wobble around the first lap and I come into the pits because you have to do an installation lap. And um, they're like, right here, jump out. It's going to be about 20 minutes before you get back in. So I get out and I'm sitting and having a thing. And then 20 minutes come around. They're like, oh, it's time to get back in. And I remember thinking, do I really want to get back in? Really? That's how crazy fast it was. And I'm like, yes, of course I do. So wow. I, anyway, I got back in and, and um, yeah, it was, I remember my first flying lap. So Obviously, I was I was ready for the acceleration on the out of the pit lane, so I didn't quite give it a hundred percent. Anyway, to go off around thing, and I'd come around parabolica onto the start, the straight, the first time. I've watched the Grand Prix my whole life, and that's where Senna ones. died as well in that very spot. So I come come on, I'm like on the parabolica, down the straight, and I'm like glancing down. That's I can realize I'm going pretty quick. Everything just starts. Your vision just closes in, huh. and they said on the track walk, braking's about 130 meters. So I'm like, okay, so. Here we go. So it passed the start finish line and warp factor nine, 380 <laughs> something kilometers an hour. And the 500 meter board goes past the 400. <laughs> and I thought, fuck this. <laughs> On the break at about the 200 meter mark, 250 meter mark. And I stopped and I'm like, hmm, bump, bump, bump. Had to accelerate and change two gears before I got oh, to the corner. Once you get into the corner. So I'm like, all right, maybe it will stop. So <laughs> it was um, it was such a um, head spin to get your head around the. the 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 braking and accelerate the corner speed was about the same as the F three car the high speed corners was was a little bit higher but it was the acceleration and braking which was the the, the thing that that spun you out but after a couple of hours it, it, it all dies down and you're like I need more power but right. um, but yeah it was amazing amazing fun um, something that I'd wanted to do my whole life and and um, young guy from west of Sydney mm. and uh, at school with teachers and people telling you you're a dreamer, you're never going to achieve it, you're wasting your time, you're, you're just going to be a dropkick, you're like being shot down your whole life and living and growing up out there. And then to be able to do that was a real you sort of moment for, for all those people. And from what I can gather, as you did more of that testing, your times really stacked up against, yeah, we were, against was, the guys that were racing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I was on par, quicker, the same as uh, as uh, the two guys that the, were racing was Eddie and and uh, Pedro. Or Pedro's car changed. It was Luciano, and there was quite a few guys through that second seat at that time. But yeah, I was 
I was uh, I was there and and ready to fire. So being there and ready to fire, and you mentioned that accident, which we'll speak about in a moment. But at this stage, I guess through Alan, you're being approached. I know a little bit of the way the world of Formula One works. She's a cutthroat caper, but you are at some stage. People are going to be starting to talk to you and managers and teams, and y- yeah, you're so going I had to drive a, Formula One. Yeah, I had a deal that I was if I won the British Formula Four Championship, I was in with Jaguar, right. So I was, in my mind at that point, I was there because I, I was winning the championship. Um, yeah, I knew the whole team. I was getting on amazingly with everyone. Um, you know, the F one testing was going perfectly. Um, you know, we had, you know, as everything does, you had the test driver through all that thing, so you mm-hmm. had a lot of failures and stuff. But the car speed was really good. Um, I was working well with all the engineers. Yeah, everything was everything was. Right on on uh, on cue. So what happened? Um, what ultimately what happened is they sold to Red Bull, and that sort of like with any big management, Red Bull had their junior program, so you got pushed aside, and they got cleaning and Mark. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, that's what happened for me, um, and that's ultimately why it happened. It wasn't because the F one crash. Um, Tell us was, about that. Um, yeah, so th- I had a. Probably the biggest crash in my or not probably not. Yeah, would be. Where um, was it? Crash at Monza when we were testing there a couple of years later. In the Jag. Yeah, uh, rear suspension coming into Ascari's three hundred and seventy-five coming into there it failed. Hit the wall, still doing three hundred and twenty. Um, Do you know something's gone wrong? Yeah, because as you come up, as you break, the whole the thing didn't slow down and it rocked onto that rear corner. So you sort of look straight away you reaction is to look at the mirror to see what's going on and there was not I saw the couldn't see the wheel and as I was looking at the mirror I saw the wheel going past me so I realized that wasn't good and the whole floor tore off the wing um the corner pulled out um the rear floor come off because it's all sort of all connected to each other so an F1 car backing off brakes harder like four times harder than what a supercar does like hard on the brake just with the amount of drag because at the time they were 650 kilos or something and had 950 horsepower because it was back in the V10, mm. 18,500 RPM day, so mm. plenty of uh, power. And, uh, yeah, so the, the corner, the rear suspension, the bottom wishbone pulled out from the gearbox and then tore all that stuff off, so then you don't have any brakes either. Well, you have front brakes, but one of the wheels are, is off the ground. So I hit the wall, um, went back. Every wheel got torn off at the wings. How fast gone. did you hit the wall at, do you reckon? Uh, it was 320 kilometres an hour or something. Higher barriers? Yeah, but I hit above it. So I hit, because at it, Ascaria, you come up and it turns left and then goes around to the right and there's yeah. a curb all the way around there. Yep. Because you're trying to save it, you think you're going to get around. Uh, <laughs> hit the curb and then it, the car flew. So then hit the fence and then sort of come back out. Um, yeah, so tore the engine off the tub, the gearbox off the engine. So the thing was like I was pretty much in a canoe, um, shit everywhere. So uh, so yeah, and then it, it um, paralysed on the right side for probably about six hours. All your muscles and everything relaxed on that side, all bleeding in your ears, nose, mouth, ass, everything. Like just blood coming out just from the impact. All my eyes turned red. Um, you just yeah. Just the, the the force of the impacts, it was like, um, I think they sustained like something like 67 Gs for a certain period of time on the impact. Um, so, yeah, so my brain was swollen and there's a main artery over your ear that was ruptured, so I had bleeding on the brain, so that's why I wasn't allowed to race. And 
for a while. And uh, yeah, was that, it? Is it true that Shuey pulled you out of the car, Michael Schumacher? Yeah, yeah he because there was shit everywhere. Couldn't yeah. couldn't stop. I oh, couldn't get through. So yeah, here's the first car on the scene, and and um, yeah, it was yeah because I was trying to get. They were trying to keep me in the car. And Do you, you remember I, all this? Yeah, I remember. I remember it coming off. I remember hitting the curb and going up and thinking, I probably should, should I let go or hold on? And then I remember waking up and I, my left arm was holding on, but my right arm wasn't. So then the radio was on, the button was on the right. So then I went to talk, but I couldn't move my arm. So then panicked and then I, your fate, then you realise that you're starting to feel strange. So I opened my visor and by that point, the marshal was there and, and Michael was there. And as I opened my visor, I think because it was all milky, my vision, I think it was, must have been from the blood and stuff in your eyes. And um, and I saw the look on their face and he's telling me to stay in the car and I'm like, fuck this, <laughs> I don't want to be in here because I could see how much damage there was. So you just want to get out of there, yeah, get away from it. So it was, it was before hands and all that sort of stuff. So my head hit the steering wheel. So you sort of sit probably, a, what is that, about a foot and a half away from the steering wheel, your head. My head hit the steering wheel, the belt stretched like on the slack, they're like three and a half inches longer than what they were. That's a, you know, the big wide belts. That's how much they stretched. That's how much they stretched. Um, so yeah, it it was a huge impact, and um, yeah, and then anyway, I got out of the car and sort of I was sort of sitting on the on the on the side, and then they they took me away in the ambulance to the hospital. Have you seen the video? Is there a video? There was a video, like I an FIA type video, or a... no, it was circuit TV. But right. I think I think uh, Jaguar destroyed it, but it looked pretty. It looked cool. Yeah, I bet it did. Mm. So they let me watch it once, and then they destroyed it. I think. What What was the upshot of being in hospital? What was wrong with you? What wasn't wrong with you? Um, well, I was alive, so that was I was happy about that. Yeah. Um, Only just. But it was. I could speak Italian from when I was there, but the problem with the Italian that I learnt it was very like it was a lot of dialect, so it was a lot of slang. Yeah. So I could talk crap and with people and understand what they're saying, but anything sort of important, like when you're talking about your brain and and, and being paralysed and that there's words I couldn't understand. So I was trying to, one, I'm all screwed up. Mm. I'm trying to un, like speak Italian when your head's all fucked and trying to understand what they're saying because and then the doc, they got a guy that could speak English and then he sort of explained it to me that they think that it's just going to be temporarily just from the shock of the impact um, and and all that sort of stuff. So they... They had me in there and then later that night the team wanted to get me out of there. So then they flew me back to the UK. And then when I got back to the UK, um, by this point Carlin, Adrian Burgess, who's my who ran my car, knew about what had happened and he had organised with Trevor and the guys at the team to go and see um, Sid Watkins or Dave Kranskin, who was his sort of second guy in charge. So then they took me straight to him and then that's when they did all the scans and saw all the bleeding and, and all that sort of stuff and swelling. Was that, mate, was that the end of the F1 dream? No, I, I tested again after that. Right. I uh, wasn't going to let that hold me back. Um, you know, it wasn't my fault that we had yep. the had the accident. Um, it was, you know, a mechanical failure. So, it, you know, I didn't, I don't know why, but you sort of see that as it, it's, it can happen. It can happen to me on the weekend. So yep. it's part of what we do. Um, so yeah, I never questioned my ability. The guys at Jaguar, I, I continued testing after that once I was allowed to go again. Um, 
but but yeah, so that that didn't end it or end the dream that I had for it all. It was probably uh, that happened later. How? Um, with the whole sale sale of Jaguar um, and Red Bull coming in, um, and I suppose with. I felt with the speed that I'd showed and how fast I, you know, where I was in the championship and yep. that I'd earned my position in the team and, and, and then I wanted to be, like everyone wanted me there, but um, with the sale of the team to Red Bull and with Christian coming in, it was a bit of a kick slap in the face, I suppose. Um, so it sort of tarnished it a little bit then, but then I got an opportunity to go to Japan and... and, and um, do some engine stuff for Toyota there and, and race in their sports car program um, and do Formula 3, another year of Formula 3 in Japan. And, um, you know, the Formula Nippon thing was getting really strong and guys were earning good money doing that. So, it, um, so yeah, that's where my next opportunity came. And you went there and you won there as you'd won everywhere. But but I guess the crux from where I sit, again, is if... You're sitting here now, you're happy, you're healthy, you've got a beautiful family, beautiful wife, beautiful children, you're racing cars on the weekend in the most competitive category on the planet, the supercars. But did it take or do you still struggle to deal with the fact that you were beating these guys that we've spoken about in carts and now they're <laughs> world champions? Yeah, I think for my first few years I was angry for a long time about it. Yeah. Um in that, yeah, like you said, I'd beat them in karting, beat them in Formula Ford, beat them in Formula 3. You know, when we were testing, I was quicker than them. Um, but I suppose as you get older and you, you, um, you experience things and, and um, I realise that probably for me it's I'm now, only now that it's happened to me, I realise that it's probably the best thing that could have happened to me. How can you say that? Um, I think I probably I would have been, I would have been a complete arsehole. I, I, you know, you, you, if you're an F1 driver, yeah, I, I think ev- for me, everything. I'm very much of a everything happens for a reason sort of yep. bloke, and and um, you know, I, I, if you said to me, hey, I've got a time machine, let's jump in it, we can go back to that, you know, ten years earlier, and yep. and um, and you can have a crack, but um, yeah, you know, I wouldn't take it. Like my first to, to show you, um, I did three years in Japan, and we won the F3 championship. Um, won races in Formula Nippon, uh, one that came second in the GT Championship and all that sort of stuff. And then when I came back here in 2006, I could have gone to America and raced with Ray Hall in, in Champ Car or for a, I had a drive there to do that. And I also had a drive to do race in Midland F1 team. Um, so I could have done the F1 racing. I could have done what I wanted to do as a as a kid. There was an opportunity to race in Midland yeah, so in I, F1. You would yeah. have been on the F1 grid. Yeah, so I had a contract, had everything, could have done it. Um, but I suppose I sat down um, with Neil, probably Neil Crompton and Alan and and everyone, and and spoke about um, you know how everything had come along and where we were and and that position that and when I'd got to that point in life, I'd, I'd um, to be honest, I wasn't I'd forgotten how much I'd love racing um, because when you go through the whole form, once you leave karting, you don't, you formula four is probably the last time you really race wheel to wheel combat. Cause yeah. then once you get to formula three and nip on and, and all that sort of stuff and doing the F1 stuff, you never, you, you're racing, but you're not really like, it's not wheel to wheel racing. And, you're racing the and I sort almost. of forgot how much I enjoyed that. And until I went to Japan and started doing the big sports cars and with all the ground effects, you can run close and, and I was enjoying my, 
my racing so much, like doing that. And then I could see the supercars here was very much a similar sort of thing, but on a bigger scale with, you know, more loose blokes in it. So it's, mm. um, mm. I sort of sat there and I thought, um, and I remember sitting with Neil and Karis and Alan and talking about it and saying, um, for sure there's a part of me that wants to go and tick that box that I'd set when I was a young kid to race Formula One. Um, but I don't, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been happy doing it because I, I want to compete. In the end, I'm an aggressive, competitive bastard. And only if you're with a certain, you know, six or one of six cars, That's three it. teams, you're not going to be competing for a race. And I wasn't interested in going and racing my teammate for 13th position every weekend in the midfield, mid to the back of the field. It's not, I'm, I was there, I'm here because I want to compete against everyone in it and race and race at the front and race hard and have a good time. And I wouldn't have had a good time there um so that's probably when i just closed off from that and realized that it's um it'd be better for my sanity to uh to come back here race in a competitive you know environment have a chance to win get some sort of relationship back with my family mm-hmm. um you know karis and i'd been going out quite a few you know quite a while we wanted to get married and start our family of our own so my whole focus went from you know being completely focused on being a Formula One world champion, that was all I would accept. To then as you get older and you experience, you know, the accident and you realise life's a lot more about, you know, enjoying it while you're there. Um, and I saw this way of going about as being a much better um, better route and, and I'd be a lot happier. I'll be frank with you, mate. I thought we'd struggle to get to an hour in this discussion. I reckon we're an hour in and you haven't even jumped in a bloody V8 supercar. So, um, <laughs> I talk too much. No, no, you haven't, mate. It's been phenomenal. Just just one question relating back to that. Do you have any effects today from that shunt in the Jaguar? Um, no, my, my nervous system now, see, see how much I shake? Yeah, and I've noticed that before. I've never asked you about yeah, it. Yeah, that's... Though. Due to that, I think so. It's um just the damage from the impact. So it's funny, like now when I, I go up and I'm doing something, people are like, oh, don't you, don't be nervous. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not nervous. I'm like, show how bad it gets after I get out of the car. I can't even write my name. That's how bad it all because of the shaking, the nervous. Yeah, just and it's not such it's not a big that I'm, I'm not nervous. It's no. my, like your nervous system just from the the accident and the damage that was done. But uh, as for yeah, I'm not nervous. It's just yeah, that's, headaches. Um, for a long, long, like it was about an, a year and a half that I had a constant headache from the accident. The whole time? Yeah. Like, like, mi- like around the twist. crazy mig- migraines and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, you'd wake up and as soon as you'd have like there was light or noise, you'd just get like mad migraines. And it probably took a year and a half for that all to go away. And they said it was because um, your brain's the slowest healing organ because it's running your whole body and it, it can't really ever shut down. So... So um, that's why Nate told me that would happen for a long time. But even now, like, we, I can't tolerate real loud noise. And my hearing screwed from, my, from the impact because I think I ruptured all my eardrums and, and all that sort of stuff. So now if we're in a – like last night we are sitting in a restaurant and I end up – people think I'm being rude, but I just can't hear. Like as soon as there's a lot of background noise, I can't hear what people are saying. So, so, um, so as an incredibly, and I know you are an incredibly fit, how old are you now? 30, 36. As an incredibly fit 36-year-old that gets a lot out of life, do you look back on that with not the perfect body now and think yeah, that's just what happens or that's worth or is that's not worth it? 
Oh, I think it's worth it. I think everyone, uh, everyone's you, got their you qualms. Like are crazy, you, you car racing boys. Oh, like you, <laughs> anyone's good. You're, like you've probably got a sore back from time to time, or you know, from a, something you did that was stupid when you were younger. Oh, I, I haven't crashed many F1 cars with the 370 clicks now. All right, let, let's move on from that. You, you, you sit here today. Um, you've had a fantastic V8 supercar career. You've been a, a champ. Um, beating a bloke who's been one of the most dominant drivers of all time in a second car, a car that he uh, that he upgraded, and you still beat him. Are you are you satisfied? Um, are you happy as a V eight supercar driver and what you achieved? Because you've had a you've had a phenomenal career, mate. And congratulations oh, I'm sure to I'm you. not. I'd want to have achieved a lot more wins. Um, you know, I think through the early part of my career back here, I I. Um, I was still probably trying to prove to a lot of Australia that, you know, that I deserve to be here and, you know, and that, you know, with them saying I should have been in F1 was, was justified. So I, and I felt that let down with the, my first few years here in Australia that I wasn't, like I, you know, we won races and everything, but I wasn't as competitive as what I wanted to be. So And you'd won everything to that point. You'd won everything yeah. as we've heard today. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, tough that first few years in that, you know, we, like I said, we won races, we got pole positions real quick, but I wasn't, there was that one bloke that was dominating a lot more than us. Mm. Um, so when that opportunity had come to go with DJR and have the same car or year old car, yep. um, of Jamie as, as up. Jamie, um, yep. I thought, bang, this is it. Now I've got, I can say I've got as close to as equal equipment as what I can have. Yep. So game on, I can show that you know he isn't a superstar he is beatable and we can do it so um so that was you know for me was a very very rewarding period in that um you know it, you know for sure he's a fierce competitor not taking anything away from what he's achieved um but i think a lot of his success is on the back of you know a very successful team um but in you know Jamie had to steer the car and and get it but it, for me and for a lot of people, you know, close to me, it was it was um, it was great to show that, yeah, he is beatable, and which we've seen from now on as well. Mm. But it's um, but yeah, for, to be able to have that same equipment with no excuses, right here, we've got the same, well, a similar car as what we can. Um, I had the belief in the blokes that I sort of got around me that we were as good, if not better, than those guys, and I had the confidence in. In you know, in my little group, that we could um, succeed, and and considering we we did do it with all the stuff that went on, like halfway through the year, the team was our team was struggling for funding. Yeah. Um, the receivers were looking at coming in and shutting DJR down. We you know coming into the last race weekend, we didn't have breaks for the last re- race weekend at Homebush. We had to recycle because you couldn't afford pads them. and break discs and all this sort of stuff. And Dick was saying that the receivers are going to take the truck and close the factory so don't leave anything in the factory and and with all that sort of going on for me um to keep my little focused group of boys on my side of the garage and and everyone focused um on that championship with them not knowing if they have a job was was um was really pretty tough but i remember getting all the blokes together and saying look you know with all the uncertainty the best thing that we can do is pull together and win because if if we win People are 100% going to be wanting us, so let's just block all that other crap out and let's just focus on what we're doing. So, um, you know, I can't thank the boys enough, you know, that what they did. And probably one of the most special moments in my whole career isn't a racing moment. It would be 
at Homebush when the rain came down, we all went into the wall, um, limping the car. I remember all of us were in the wall and I was sitting there and I thought, fuck, Leach Windcup's in there with me. And then I saw his car move and I thought, oh, fuck, now I've got to drag this thing back. So I pulled a gear and I'm under the radio to the boys right here. <laughs> I'm slowly bringing this thing back. So we're all like wobbling back to the pit lane and, and to sit in the car and see the passion and the drive and how much the boys wanted it as much as what I did. For me, that was the uh, the most rewarding moment in my career. Just, um, you know, the brakes are three billion degrees and the guys just with their hands just grabbing them and pulling them off just to get make sure they could get my car fixed in time so we could get out and do one lap. And to see, you know, that amount of passion and, and will and want to do it and we did it, um, it was it was amazing. And ultimately, that's that didn't win us the championship, but that made that next day. All we had to do the next day was finish, and um, yeah, that was that was pretty pretty special. What happened with the helicopter? <laughs> oh, it's like a ridiculous question. <laughs> I don't. Really uh, I was know. talking to MJ, I produced the other day. So James got a pretty good story, um, and he's like, "Oh, is he the guy that got hooked up with that helicopter?" And it's like. It's like something out of funniest home videos, mate. But it's exactly not. Funny. But it's not funny. But I'm the like I reckon I'm one of the most unlucky people. Well, oh, I'm lucky in that I've got a you know a great life. I yes, have a fantastic. I know career, what you're saying. Yeah, you know, beautiful, healthy kids. But I like not only did I have that rear suspension failure in the Jaguar, I had a yes. rear wing failure at through bridge, and I went off at another 300 kilometers an hour. I had front roll bars fail in that thing. I had rear foot floors fail. Um, Supercars. I had old mate with his tire go down, Frenchie, and T-bone me and break my legs at That's at right. um, at Phillip Island. Broke my elbow, my leg in two places, my finger. Um, I've had so much stuff, and then of all that, um, <laughs> sitting coming out of my garage to walk out. I went to the toilet and I was walking through Charlie's garage, who they, we ran the Schwerkolt license that year, mm. and walking around to walk back into out like in that. Five seconds it takes to walk out of one garage, around the door and into another. A helicopter's hovering with old mate perving on some chick on the roof, comes down too <laughs> low, gets caught up in the turbulence, a pit boom comes flying off and cracks me in the side, breaks six ribs. Um, all my whole sternum's broke. Well, broke my whole sternum, six ribs, pushed three ribs into my spine. I've still got pins and needles in my legs now. Um, ruptured my lungs. Um, it's, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I remember it being hit and I was, it knocked me into the, like there's a little breezeway. Did you I was have any around. idea what had happened? No, I walked out and I'm like, it's windy. And right as it came down, an old mate started to panic because the downdraft started, something happened and the helicopter started nearly like coming back down. So old mate floored it to get out of there and all the dust. And I put, right as I put my hand up like that to sort of look what was happening and cover my eyes from the dust. I got, that's when I got hit by the thing. So it sort of knocked me and I sort of stumbled into this breezeway. And I was laying on the ground and I'm like, and I remember thinking, I can't breathe. And like, and I was, then I was trying to yell because I was in like a breezeway in amongst tyres, like where the guys store all the crap, all the tyres, all the wets and stuff. And I'm laying on the ground. I'm like, I'm mouthing like I yes. can't talk. Yes. Obviously, it's not television, it's radio. No. But, um, yeah, so I couldn't yell and I couldn't breathe or I could breathe really shallowly. So I was panicking like hell that I was going to – I think I, was, I thought I was going to peg out in that breezeway. Right. And all the boys are picking up all this stuff because everything went everywhere. 
And then one of the guys, Burnsy, saw me laying on the ground and he could see that I was in a little bit of distress. And he came over and he sort of rolled me over and I was in a lot of pain. And then he could see I was struggling to breathe. So then he went to give me, he started like, fuck, I couldn't give this guy mouth to mouth. I was like, and I'm trying to, I'm hurt and I'm trying not to, I'm trying to, like I'm breathing so shallowly, but I'm trying to push him off like, I don't want to, I can breathe just a little bit. I got a little bit. I don't need it yet. I don't need it yet. But um, but then I was, yeah, so then they dragged me out and they're all looking at me. And, and I remember when I was on the ground of all people, like Paul Gover, a journalist yeah. who I've known since I was 14, Paul's on the, like I can see him, he looks at me and doesn't help me. I hate you for this, Gover. <laughs> on his phone calls um, Mark Hallsborough, a photographer, that says, get down here, he's injured. And I'm like... <laughs> I remember like going off at him about it afterwards. I'll never forget you, Gover. But um, but yeah. So anyway, then the ambulance came and and then they took me away and and I just thought I was really badly winded because it was like that sort of feeling. So then I was in the medical center and they're like, oh, you know, we think it's serious. We want to take you away. And I'm like, I, I started to get more and more. I, as you calm down, I could breathe a little bit more and I could sort of I couldn't talk, but I could. And they wanted to give me morphine. I'm like, no, because then I won't be able to, because I thought I was going to get in the car in 10 minutes because the session had started. Oh, you're still thinking you get in the car at yeah, this so stage? I'm wanting to get in the car. So they wanted to take my suit off and I'm like, no, I'm about to get in the car. So I'm like telling them to wait anyway. And then um, they're like, oh, can you feel what's this? And they're pushing on. And because of the adrenaline, you can't feel anything. You knew it was weird, but I thought I'll be right. I'll worry about it later. I want to get in the car. Yeah. So they're checking it out and anyway. And then I started to taste a lot of blood in my mouth and I thought, oh shit, this is a bit serious. And, um, and yeah, then I told them that I could taste blood in my mouth. And so then they rushed me off and, and then they marked me for, they realized my lung had collapsed and, and yeah. And then I went to hospital. And you still get pins and needles today? Yeah, constantly. If I'm not moving my legs, I can feel pins and needles in the back of my knees and arches of my feet. So it went, I, like there was months where I couldn't sleep properly. Um, you know, I wasn't in the car for a long time and the medication sent me crazy. Um, yeah, so that was, that was a pretty, pretty shit time as well. Mate, we haven't really, we haven't really spoken about your family and you, you've been good enough with your time, but I guess after this story you've told me from when you started as a young bloke in Penrith, all the things you've gone through and you've had some incredible highs and you've had some bloody big hits along the way, obviously, Mm. literally and physically, from now in a car, if there was one thing you could hope to achieve in your career from now, and this will be played after the Grand Prix, but the Grand Prix is about to start 2017. Grand Prix, if there's one thing you could achieve, what would it be? Um, a championship with these guys, right. formerly HRT, Walkinshaw Group. Um, so much passion in this team and, and yeah, so many good blokes that, like Rastari, Robbie Starr, he's been there for 26 mm. years, Macca. 16 years. There's so many blokes within the organisation that have been, you know, with the heyday when Scaife was and, and Lowndes were dominating and winning everything and they've been all the way to, you know, the bottom of the barrel when, you know, when the team was struggling, you know, when Will came 22nd in the championship and and um, for me to be able to, um, you know, reward those guys with another championship, that's, for me, it's, um, yeah, that's what it's all about. And are you a lucky bloke or you're an unlucky bloke? I'd say lucky. I'm here. I've got a beautiful wife, amazing kids, and I'm living my dream. And one of the kids is Cadell, named after? 
Yeah, I named Cadell before Cadell won the uh, right. before well, he won the tour. Was he named after Cadell Evans? Yeah, yeah, I, I <laughs> admired. I remember being a young bloke in Penrith when I was part of my training when I was karting when I was thirteen, fourteen. Was I loved? We lived west of Sydney near the Blue Mountains, so I'd go mountain bike riding. Cadell at that point was a mountain bike rider, yeah. so you know, idolised him. I had a Cannondale like his. He rode for Cannondale, so it was someone that, that I always admired. His his drive and his his you know outside of, of you know. Motorsport. I thought he was his determination was was very very impressive. And my wife Karis, um, she's Welsh. Um, Kiddell's a Welsh name. So uh, so yeah, won a bit of won a bit of favoritism with the father-in-law with that name as well. But uh, but it. yeah, it's uh, he's a great little bloke. I love it. You've got to listen to his episode of the Howie Games, Kiddell Evans. It blew my socks off. Now we always finish this. Uh, I don't know how far you've got through any of these episodes, but I have two kids. Uh, and you are going to hear now from my five-year-old boy, yep. whose name is the Big Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> it's not his actual name, but uh, he came to me a couple of years ago. His name is Mac, a good Scottish name, and he said, Dad, I want to change my name to the Big Penguin. So he's still called Big Penguin. In fact, they're calling him Big Penguin at school at the moment, which I think is going to come back to haunt him. Cadell wants to change his name to... To what, to? DJ Dell.C for some reason. DJ Dell.C? Yeah. It's quite complex. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, this going to be a little hard, mate. It doesn't really roll off the tongue too well. It's sort of very 2017, <laughs> yeah. though. He reckons he's going to be a DJ. DJ and a, and a soccer player with okay. Messi. Oh, well, I like that. I like that. So I, I tell the kids um, uh, normally over breakfast, okay, this is the guy we're speaking to on the Howie Games today, and whichever one's most interested, they put a question. Uh, I sometimes have to give them something, and he, he said straight away, Dad, I know what I want to ask this guy. He knows I'm working at the F1 this weekend. Um, he quite likes the F1 boys. He doesn't really understand too much about the V8s, but he's not getting pocket money at the moment, and it's a bit of an issue with him, and I think that <laughs> might have prompted this question. So this is the big penguin to you, JC. Hi, JC, Big Penguin here. Do you get paid as much as Lewis Hamilton? <laughs> I don't think anyone but Bill Gates gets paid as much as Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> Big Penguin. But uh, but no, I'm 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 uh, yeah, I don't have to have a real job, so I'm pretty uh, I'm I'm pretty well looked after, mate. Oh, he said, "Do you think he will?" I said, "I don't know, mate, but I will ask him." Mate, you started this by saying that you hope people. Um, uh, you, you you said sometimes they think you're a bit of an arsehole. I, I, I haven't seen that, but um, I think people are going to listen to this and I reckon a lot more people come, when this episode comes out, they'll turn on the V8s and they'll start going for you, which is bloody fantastic, mate. I personally hope that you and Jack Perkins win Bathurst one day because that would be... That was a massive moment for me. With, with Jack, just touching on quickly. On the, up on he, the Gold um, Coast? Yeah, up on the Gold Coast when we won. For someone, I've lived, I've raced with a lot of guys that live in their father's shadow, Stevie Johnson at yep. DJR. You know, they really struggle for it, and that's what I'm, I'm pretty conscious about with Cadell because you've seen it firsthand. And 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 uh, to be with Jack and to see um, him achieve something that he'd wanted to achieve for so long outside and away yeah. from his father, and to do it with me was pretty special. In that um, Larry, in my early karting career, gave me five grand yeah. and said, I know this isn't much, but you know, it's what I can afford and I, I want to, you know, help. Um, so I've got a good relationship, you know, a long-term relationship with his dad and to be able to have achieved that with Jack is, is that's another massive standout in my career. Such a good young bloke. Well, I hope you blokes win Bathurst together, but mate, um, thanks for sitting down, having a chat. I think people are going to be blown away by this episode and a lot of people take a lot from it. So James, we appreciate it and may you win many more races for your money. Cheers, mate. Top. 
Thanks to James Courtney for being so honest and for giving up quite a bit of his time and to Andrew Wiles from HSV Racing for setting the whole episode up. To MJ. Now, MJ, normally at this part of the show, I pump you up, I blow smoke up you, I tell you how good a job you're doing. But after that Lewis Hamilton effort, my friend, you are in disgrace, buddy. But like my old coach used to say... Tonight you hit me like you never heard me before. You got to go all in. Every one of your poker chips has got to be at the edge of the table and you got to push them all in tonight. That goes for you on the sideline. That goes for you on the field tonight. You are all in. You hear me? I need this game tonight. I need, I'm selfish. I'm a selfish creature. I need this game tonight. When I needed them, they turned their back on me. I need you to cash the check that I want to write tonight. Will you cash that check for me? Yes, sir. Will you cash that check for me? Yes, sir. Will you cash that check for me? Yes, sir. Cash that check for me? Yes, sir. Cash the check, MJ. Lewis is the check. Cash it. Cash it. <laughs> All right. Until next Thursday. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener